Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. I'm joined today for yet another episode uh, by Jeff Kemp, a former quarterback who played for 11 seasons in the NFL, as well as being the son of the legendary Jack Kemp. So uh, we'll be talking more about sports today than we have in episodes in the past, so that should be an interesting new twist. And of course, we'll be diving into politics and some other issues to some extent as well. So uh, we look forward to that in just a moment. And I want to remind you, of course, if you haven't done so yet, please uh, follow the Twitter account at Reagan Worldwide. It's at Reagan Worldwide. And without further ado, we will get him on the air now. Hi, and uh, good to have you on. Hello, can you hear me? Hello, there you are. Great. How's it going? Hey, this is Jeff Kemp. Hi. Good. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Hey, Jay. How you doing? Great. Fantastic. All right. How are you? Excellent. So so, uh, let's get started talking about your origins. Uh, What was it that drew you to football, and did you have your eye set on the NFL from the start? Well, and when I was a little boy, my dad's job was uh, he was a quarterback for the Buffalo Bills until I was age 11. Um, so when people said, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? I was like, oh, I want to play football. I want to be a quarterback. I didn't really know that it wasn't an easy job to get. Um, but I did love playing football and love throwing footballs. My dad taught me to throw a football. I did it a bunch as a little kid. We played in the backyard. I didn't play organized football really till ninth grade. Um, but in my mind, I always wanted to be um, an NFL quarterback, and quarterback's a leader position. You're in charge. You're throwing the ball. You're leading the team. Uh, my dad had done it, and I kind of figured I'd do it. Now, I wasn't the world's best player in high school. I was a good quarterback, but our team won a state championship. I had good grades and got into Dartmouth, and uh, that was the highest level football I could play. So that's not a normal breeding grounds for an NFL career, but it was the best school I could go to, and I ended up sneaking into the NFL as a free agent in 1981. Right. Well, playing for an Ivy League team obviously isn't the most common story for NFL players, um, but what was it like going to Dartmouth and you know playing football somewhere like that? Uh, Dartmouth was awesome. <laughs> On my recruiting trip, I, I remember going up there, uh, meeting with the coaches and players and examining the field and I went skiing at the Dartmouth Skiway. Uh, it was in the, in the winter and I thought, oh my gosh, I want to play football and join a fraternity and be, ski at the Dartmouth Skiway. This is the best of all worlds. Um, ended up great. Frankly, the level of football in the Ivy League is very competitive, but it's reasonable. It, they don't own your whole life. You go to classes. If you got to miss football practice for a science lab, you do. Um, the games are intense. The crowds are a lot more moderate than the big big uh, Division One teams. Um, but I made phenomenal friends, great guys from all over the country, excellent coaches. Um, I wouldn't say that we are prepared for pro-style offenses and, and reading defenses and such. So there was a big leap for me from the Ivy League into the NFL. Uh, but it was a fabulous college, great friends, great education, and uh, really thankful for it. Great. So as you mentioned, you 
um, you went undrafted but ended up in the league anyway. Uh, what did you think of being put in that position, and how challenging was it to you know, get on a team from that angle? Well, honestly, I kind of had a vision, like I said, that somehow, some way, I would end up um, as a starting quarterback in high school. didn't happen to my senior year in college, didn't happen to my last two years, and finally I figured I'd get into the NFL. And even though I started off as a free agent and the odds were 50 to 1 against my making the team, they usually keep three quarterbacks. Somehow they kept four that year and they kept me. Uh, I wasn't active for the first games, but I think they saw I had a strong arm and uh, kept me around and I started rising slowly. Um, So I was not uh, daunted by the long odds of being a free agent. I was just happy to have a a crack at the league. And um, I really kind of had a feeling that this was going to be my pathway and that God had a plan for me and uh, it, football was a part of it. So um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's amazing that it happened. And actually it's, it's funny, AJ, the year I retired, my wife uh, went to the NFL films and asked them to make a highlight film. And she gave it to me for Christmas. I kind of tracked the four teams I was on and my journey. And uh, it was like watching a dream. And I, treated it like it was normal during those 11 years. Like, of course, I'm playing quarterback and playing for the Niners and such. But, you know, we watched the video and just the kids were playing that morning with their toys and we just started crying, realizing what a what a dream that we lived and what a blessing it was that God allowed me to play. And, yeah, I'd worked super hard and persevered, but um, a ton of things had to happen the right way for me to um, make the Rams team in the first place and then continue for 11 years. So, very, very grateful, hard work, but not crediting myself alone. That makes sense. So with the Rams, 1984 was probably your best season when you led the Rams to the playoffs. How would you describe going through that sort of chase? Well, that was uh, pretty intense because I had never had any experience um, at the NFL level, and our starting quarterback, Vince Ferragamo, got hurt uh, after, I think, the third game and uh, I picked up and started learning on the fly. We had a a running back by the name of Eric Dickerson that uh, ran for 2,100 yards that year. So it it made the offense viable, whether I was uh, well-developed yet or not. Um, And I ended up learning well. I remember one week I I was a little frustrated. We weren't passing the ball much. Um, We were winning and our coach, John Robinson was a great coach and motivator. He called me in and, um, he drew a few numbers on a piece of paper and then slid it across to his desk to me. And uh, one of them was a low interception number, how few interceptions I was throwing. Um, another one was a touchdown number and how many touchdowns per attempt uh, I was throwing. And uh, then the other one was our win and loss record. And he said, this is the one that counts. We're winning. Don't worry about throwing a lot of passes or not throwing a lot of passes. You're keeping the ball out of the other team's hands and, you're throwing some touchdowns when we give you the chance, not making mistakes. This is helping us win. Um, really good coaching because sometimes you might listen to voices saying, oh, you're not playing like someone else, so you're not throwing enough. Um, but the point of the game is to win, and sometimes you got to not lose to make sure you win first. So uh, that was a great year. We went to the playoffs. Unfortunately, we lost in the playoffs, um, and I was traded a year later to the Niners and ended up playing there. 
when Montana was hurt, which was probably the most enjoyable season ever, even though I got hurt as well and I got traded away from the Niners after that season. Sure. Before we talk about the Niners, I'm curious. Um, of course, Kurt Warner also played for uh, the Rams as well, even though in a different city. Um, and he's known as a very outspoken Christian. I'm curious if you and him know each other, and if so, if there's any sharing both of those common factors. Um, boy, I, I, I've met Kurt. I don't know him. Uh, we haven't talked much over the years. Um, I think I just met him one time at a Super Bowl um, event. Um, but I sure respected him. His story, you know, is classic. The underdog, um, late bloomer, plays in the other league. You know, he was stocking groceries and never gave up and then steps in when Trent Green gets hurt and Dick Vermeil, you know, coaches him up and he plays phenomenal football for many years. Um, and I always had the idea that uh, I don't play the game for the fans. I don't play it for the coaches. I don't play it to impress others. Um, I have a single audience, and that audience is God. And, and with the love that God has demonstrated to us through Christ, you're unconditionally accepted. And if you lose, you're still loved. By the same token, God's standards of being the absolute best you can to please him are the highest standards possible. So I think I saw in Kurt Warner a strong drive uh, to be great. And I saw that in Steve Largent and Reggie White and many other guys that I played with, uh, Carson Wentz, Nick Foles, uh, guys that are playing these days. Um, a strong drive to be excellent, to be a great teammate, to relate really well and bring the level of play of the guys around you up. But at the same time, a certain awareness that my identity isn't in football, quarterback, who's a Christian. I'm I'm a son of God that God loves, and I'm following Jesus. That's my identity. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. And uh, I'm playing pro football for this season of life, and I want to be a good one. So that did help because it's a very insecure world, and if you attach your identity to the ups and downs of your performance or whether you're on a team and first string or, um, and then you get cut or you broke, break your leg – or your arm gets hurt, um, you don't lose your identity um, if you're anchored in your faith. Oh, it's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. So you then went to play for the 49ers, of course, um, you know, with one of the great quarterbacks, Joe Montana. Um, how was that, and how was stepping in for him uh, that season? Um, a lot of pressure on that team because of the high standards. Um, Bill Walsh was the head coach. He's in the Hall of Fame and has won numerous Super Bowls. Mike Holmgren has won a Super Bowl with the um, Seahawks before. Uh, Holmgren um, was the quarterback coach. And those guys set a standard of excellence and constant improvement and um, paying attention to the detail and helping all the players be intellectually great um, players, not just physically great players. I loved it. Um, and I thought I'd be learning under Joe for a while, but it turned out Montana got hurt after, in the first game of the season, and I was starting in the second game of the season. Um, so there was a good amount of pressure to live up to that high level of performance, but I was well coached, had phenomenal teammates, and uh, we played at a really high level. It was my best year of quarterbacking. I advanced a lot. 
But, uh, I mean, the the lesson I draw from that um, that really applies to anyone who's in a business or a team um, is that Bill Walsh used to set a phenomenally high vision to unite the team. Hey, we want to win a Super Bowl this year. We want to win another one next year. We want to win more this decade than anyone else. But to do that, we need to practice superbly well today. And I'm going to teach mm-hmm. you what every person does on this play, Brown right, Fox 2, Z post, play action pass so that you understand that linemen are important, the tight end is important, what the wide receiver does is important, the running back and quarterback's roles. And then he would teach all the different roles so that you would respect your teammates, know the sacrifice they're making, and when there's trust in a leader because he's got a high vision and trust in your teammates because you understand the sacrifices they make, then you're willing to sacrifice. And that's what leads to great teamwork and great achievements. Um, so I, I just love what I learned from Bill Walsh. I teach that to businesses these days, uh, the leadership principles and team principles that I gained uh, from Bill Walsh and from professional sports. No, for sure. And what was the reason you your stint there was so short before moving on to Seattle? <laughs> um, <laughs> I Probably the biggest reason was Steve Young. Um, I had a really good season, was a solid backup, but Joe Montana – in Bill Walsh's mind, was getting near the end of his peak years. And Walsh used to move players out before they were completely uh, over the hill, which was tough because some great players got moved on a little bit fast. But he brought in Steve Young from um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the World League before that, uh, thinking that Steve would be a superstar of Montana caliber uh, more so than me. So uh, I believe I could have continued playing great football for them and would have loved to have been there. But I think Bill Walsh probably made a great judgment because Steve Young proved to be um, a Super Bowl champ and a Hall of Famer and a fabulous quarterback um, and leader for the 49ers. And I was I actually had a, a great training camp and was completing passes and throwing stronger than any other guys on the roster. Um, but the Seahawks were there scouting and Holmgren told me, hey, uh, great camp, but we're going, to, we're going to trade to the Seahawks. So then I went up to Seattle and finished uh, most of my career in Seattle before half a year with Philly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was the other team, of course, that you had the biggest tenure with in Seattle. Uh, what was your experience with that club like over the seasons you were there? Um, I loved the city of Seattle. Great place to raise our family. That's where we uh, had our sons, all four of them, and raised them there. Um, Chuck Knox was a very, very good coach. He could take a poor team and build them into a really, really good team. Um, I don't think we were Super Bowl caliber. We didn't have the consistency, but we had some fabulous players and people, um, Steve Largent and Dave Brown and Eugene Robinson, Paul Scanzi, running back Kurt Warner, um, Cortez Kennedy in the Hall of Fame, and um, just a bunch of great guys. Um, the first year I was there, 87, there was a strike and only five players uh, came in a week early when the owners allowed players to come in. And uh, most of the players had wanted to come in. And then at a team meeting, guys changed their mind and decided to stay out. And there was a little bit of division on the team over that decision. Um, and that wasn't a particularly easy thing for me as a brand new player on the team to go in a week earlier than the, most of the other players. Um, it was also hard being on the bench a, long, a lot of the time. David Craig was our starter, and uh, I didn't beat him out. I had one good opportunity in 1988 uh, to play where I thought I'd um, 
do well as a starter and establish myself as a competitive quarterback there. And it turned out to be my worst game ever. We lost to the 49ers, my old team, um, probably 28 nothing or something. And uh, Montana threw touchdowns, and I threw interceptions, and I got benched at halftime. And it was one of the toughest things I've ever gone through because I'd never really played poorly, even been booed before. And here, my big opportunity, and uh, I played terribly, and the team played terribly, and we just got wiped out. And that pretty much ended my viable opportunity to compete for the starting job in Seattle for for those next uh, three years. But I learned some big lessons from that. Um, like I talked about, my identity was not in whether I'm a starter or thought I was a great quarterback or not. Um, it's in my relationship with God and the person I am and um, my marriage and my fathering. And uh, I also have had an experience that I think a lot of people can identify with more so than Super Bowl rings and NFL championships, um, and that's mm-hmm. getting benched, getting booed, getting rejected, having your dream fall apart. Um, I call it being blitzed. And, uh, in fact, I wrote the book, Facing the Blitz, Three Keys to Turning Trials into Triumphs, um, about those type of experiences, that if you keep a long-term perspective and you don't anchor your identity on whether I'm winning or losing or making money or not making money, whether I'm popular or not popular, um, if you keep a long-term perspective and you're willing to mature, to grow, to learn, to humble yourself and to change, um, to try something different when something you did in the past didn't work, um, and you focus on relationships, trying to bring out the best in other people and, and invest in them rather than consume from them, if you do those things, you, your bad chapters of life, your blitzes can become great chapters of life. They don't turn around mm-hmm. quickly like in the NFL where, you know, in three and a half seconds, a quarterback sight adjusts, throws a post route to a receiver, he catches a touchdown, and uh, everything turns around. It might take, you know, three months or three years for a life blitz to turn around, but we all get blitzed. Everyone faces hardship, losses, crises. Um, I think we need to have an opportunity mindset and a team to help us face blitzes rather than isolation. Hmm. Well, I was going to mention the book later, but since we're on the subject now, I think it's definitely a a really good metaphor, the title and what it's talking about. Um, So what would you say, I mean, let's say someone has a goal of, for example, being a quarterback, but they're not built to be a quarterback. So that, you know, that goal might be you know not attainable um, or compare that to anything else. And what would you say in that situation? Well, goals are um, incredibly valuable, even if you do not achieve them. One of the truths is that the majority of people who never write down their goal um, never come close to that goal. And frankly, a lot of people think they have goals, but they haven't written them down. They haven't articulated them. They haven't counted the cost and mapped out some of the steps to get there. Um, So first and foremost, I'd say, um, you know, search your heart and find out what what are your great character strengths? Um, Not just am I a good pianist or a good accountant or uh, good with investments. What, what are my character strengths? Perseverance, encouragement, creativity, intelligence. Um, is it uh, the ability to reconcile people, to peacemake, um, persuade? What, what are what are your um, inherent strengths? And then what are your passions in life? 
Like, who do you want to really help? What difference do you want to make? Um, and what, what, what issues does the need, the world need solved? Well, then put those things together and set a goal over those things. Um, but if you set a goal, write it down and then put some of the steps that it takes to get there. Obviously, if you want to be a quarterback, um, you're going to have to develop your passing, your scrambling, your reading defenses. You're going to need to be coached. You're going to need to work out. You'll need to be strong and protect from injuries. If you want to start a business, you write down your goal, and then you write down some of the things that you're going to need. And if you're not good at accounting, you're going to need to get some help in that area. If you're um, not versed well in sales, you might need to hire for that or get trained in that. Um, so you got to write down your goals and some of the benchmarks. And typically it takes longer to reach our goals than we think it will. Um, and you can do a lot less in one year than you think you can, but you can actually do a lot more in five years than you think you can uh, if you stick with something and persevere. So I would remind people to set goals, but set them wisely by searching your heart and your real strengths and your passions and the world's needs, and then write those goals down and some steps to achieve it. Um, don't keep the goal to yourself. Ask for some coaching. Ask for some mentoring. Learn everything you can from other people. Talk to someone who's achieved it before. And then persevere. Persevere. Sounds like good advice. But before we get to a couple of huge Eagles fans, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the end of your career there. Um, So your last season, obviously, was in in Philadelphia. Um, How was that, and why was that the end of the line for you? It was a a crazy year. I was playing for Seattle. We'd had an injury, so I was the starting quarterback in Seattle for six weeks. And uh, we played a Sunday night game against the Raiders. Um, we were ahead. It got tied when our team got kind of conservative, the play calling. And they came back, tied it up, went into overtime. I threw an interception in overtime uh, to my friend Ronnie Lott and the Raiders. <laughs> and they kicked the field goal, beat us. And I was cut two days later. Uh, mid-season, starting quarterback, 11th year, all of a sudden you're out of the league. And at dinner, um, my wife was trying to encourage me, and my little six-year-old son said a prayer. He said, dear God, thanks for Daddy. Please give him a new team. I want him to be on the Eagles. Amen. <laughs> Stacy and I were just la- laughing when we heard him say the Eagles. He wasn't even a football fan. He didn't know that Philadelphia had a team, his soccer team, of all things. A six-year-old soccer team was named the Eagles, and he wanted me to be on a team with the same name. So mm-hmm. the next morning, Harry Gamble, the GM of the uh, the Eagles, out of the blue, I had no clue they needed a quarterback, calls me up, tells me Randall Cunningham's broken his leg this season and McMahon's getting beat up and just sprained his ponytail. Uh, how soon can you get out here? Um, and so I was on a flight the next day, had a concussion, well, I think nine days later, because we had an off week, I learned the offense, kind of crammed to learn the offense, came in for McMahon against the Niners and got hit on the third play I was in the game and went to the hospital in an ambulance. It was not a uh, impressive start to my Philly city of brotherly love experience. Um, but then I think four weeks after I got out there, we were going to Houston and uh, uh, McMahon got knocked out of the game late in the third. And uh, we were able to beat a blitz with a safety in my face and complete a touchdown pass. And we came from behind uh, and won 13 to six on Monday night, really big game. It was an amazing defensive battle. And that was our, our, Blitz play that turned into a touchdown was the only touchdown of the whole game for Warren Moon and the Oilers or for the Eagles. 
Um, so that was awesome um, to come in and help the team as a new guy, um, kind of you know, earn your stripes, um, prove your medal, take a bunch of hits, get the get the team in the end zone. Um, that was a thrill, and then we won uh, the next week against the Giants. We had another win, I think, against the Giants. We had a loss against Dallas, and that kept us out of the playoffs by half um, half a game. Um, we beat the Redskins last game of the year, came from behind. They won the Super Bowl that year. I think they'd only lost one game until they got to us, which was their second loss of the year. So we played uh, pretty well with kind of a bunch of backup quarterbacks that I had to fill in, and I, I, had, I had a good time playing. I thought my career was resurging, um, and I signed a new contract, and they ended up keeping a guy um, instead of me that was probably paid half as much as me and had experience in the league a little bit. And so that was the end of the road, and it was a surprise. I thought I'd kind of re-energized everything and would be in Philly for a couple of years. So we went back to Seattle, and uh, gosh, AJ, I remember um, I was discouraged, um, and yet I was like hoping and praying every week that some team would call and say, "Hey, our starter got hurt. Can you come out and and uh, we'll sign you?" And uh, four weeks went by, and the Seahawks finally were the first team in the league that had a quarterback um, need, and they uh, they were in my hometown. So I called up the coach and said, "I'm in town. I'm in shape. I'm ready." Um, be right over. Well, I left it. I left it on his answering machine, and he called me up and left a message on my machine saying, "Hey, I heard you got released. Sorry about that. We're going to sign a guy from the world league. Good luck. Click." Hmm. And oh my gosh, you know, my gut fell, you know, uh, down to the floor, and I was really disappointed and upset. In fact, I was mad and uh, wasn't really banking on my faith that I talked about earlier too well, or, or remembering my identity wasn't in football. I went out, slammed the door to my front door, sat down on the front porch, and I sat there and had this big pity party and was telling God, this isn't fair. I'm not even going to pray to you. I'm just going to sit here and feel this stinking pain. So I was sitting there pitying myself and mad that football was ending with no really positive outcome, and uh, my wife came out. And uh, one of the keys to facing blitzes in life, AJ, is you don't do it alone. You cannot beat blitzes, crises, uh, huge losses, cancer, uh, bankruptcies, uh, marital troubles, um, trouble with a kid. You, you can't face blitzes alone. You got to open up and let other people be a part of your life. Um, and so my wife comes out, my best teammate, and she starts encouraging me and um, tells me that oh, this must be so painful. I'm so sorry this is happening, but you know we've been through tough things, and uh, God's always had a good plan, even though we went through some tough chapters. And I said, I know that. I just want to finish football with some dignity. Hmm. And uh, then my wife said, you know, as I recall, when Jesus left this world, he didn't get any dignity. Maybe you need to let go of that desire. Oh, I wasn't too happy with her advice. So I said, well, maybe you need to go inside. So she went inside. But in a matter of seconds, my worst moment of life at that point, losing my career at age 32, turned around in about 15 seconds to one of the very, very best moments of my life. Um, because in essence, I was thinking about what she said, that God's son comes to earth in total humility and has all these followers and is so popular on, on Palm Sunday. You know, everyone's worshiping him. And then on purpose, lets himself be rejected and arrested and 
crucified to wipe out sin and give me God's love and all of us a, a reconciliation with him. And, and I am whining about wanting more dignity and another year of pro football <laughs> when I am loved this amazingly much by God. And all of a sudden, I felt this flood of emotion of God's love for me. And I started to love God back, and I couldn't help but pray. It was like, God, thank you. Forgive me for being such a stupid little idiot. Thanks for football. Thanks for my wife. Thanks for her speaking truth to me. Um, And uh, thanks that you love me. I'm sure the future will be great. Immediately I heard these words, forget what lies behind, press on to what lies ahead. Um, I just heard those words in my head. It's actually a, a verse in the book of Philippians, I think, by the Apostle Paul, who says, forgetting what lies behind, we press on to what lies ahead. And right then I was like, okay, football's over. And I have been excited to get involved in a mission to strengthen families. And so that's what I did. Within uh, four months, I was uh, founding and um, running and building an organization to strengthen marriages and fatherhood and families. Yeah, it's a pretty huge turnaround then. Fantastic. Yeah, it was an awesome story. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious about that, but I'm wondering, too, if you think that nowadays in professional sports, um, is there a sort of stigma or um, is it difficult for someone? Like, for instance, Tim Tebow, who's he's outspoken about his beliefs. I thought he was a much better quarterback than people gave him credit for. Do you think that had something to do with him essentially being railroaded out of play in the NFL? Well, Tim's a unique case. He is probably as outspoken and not just outspoken, he's credible in terms of he lives his faith. He he, he acts consistently on all those beliefs. Um, he serves. He has kids at every game um, to remind him that he's not that big a deal and, and football's not that big a deal. Um, so I respect Tim Tebow deeply. And I think the way his family raised him um, with faith in God and humility and serving other people and then character to be a gutsy, courageous leader. Um, I think that's, that's Jesus like character, you know, gutsy courage to serve others. Um, All that's really cool. But Tim as a quarterback was far more suited as a college quarterback than a pro quarterback. He's not a drop back, lead the defense, make a quick decision, deliver the ball quickly, and feed it around the field quarterback. Tim Tebow is a competitor who was a good quarterback and probably should have lasted longer in the league, but I can see why teams didn't think of him as the quarterback to build their offense around. Um, It was ironic. Denver kept trying to not play him, and then he led him to the playoffs. But it was kind of some late-game theatrics that is what, usually worked for Tim as opposed to being able to start a game well and lead the offense and run the game plan all all game long with good percentage completions and such. He wasn't a very accurate passer, and there were some things in his mechanics. But I think because he was so outspoken and because the fans loved him so much, and yet the coaches didn't think they could really execute their whole offense in the best way possible with him, I don't think they thought the upside was that high. And maybe they even felt like there was too much pressure to play him because of Mm. all of his fans. And in that sense, it actually worked against him perhaps. But I think it was probably more of a subtle thing than some, um, you know, uh, collusion around the league to say, let's not 
have Tim Tebow play football anymore. Um, now, as for how are people of Christian faith treated in the NFL and, and pro sports, um, I think quite well because there have been so many men of faith for so many years now, coaches like Tony Dungy, uh, Coach Mike Tomlin, uh, Coach Mike Holmgren, players like Steve Largent and Reggie White, um, and and today uh, Carson Wentz, Kurt Warner. Um, there's there's so many guys, you know, Ladanian Tomlinson that have great character and phenomenal performance that their faith proves that they're driven to compete. Whereas in the olden days, sometimes they thought a Christian would be soft, wouldn't care as much because, you know, maybe a Christian doesn't cry when he loses. um, But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter to them. It just means they got a little more context to things, but they still are wanting to do the best they can. So I think in, in football and pro sports, coaches, general managers, and others today, more so than 25 years ago, really do respect, appreciate, and value um, Christian players. Now, do they get ribbing? Do they get made fun of? Will guys set them up in situations to tempt them with drink or women, um, pornography? Yeah, to see if they'll compromise, to maybe get them to lower their standards. Uh, um, And sometimes they take some ribbing because they represent a different standard. um, And people aren't always comfortable when someone's living a different standard. But I think that's why it's so important for a person of faith in Jesus to be very, very humble. Um, Just because you have different standards doesn't mean you're better than other people. It doesn't mean you're able to do those things on your own. It doesn't mean you're to judge other people. Um, Frankly, the whole essence of Christianity is humility. And I think the essence of uh, great teamwork is humility. The problem is come very humble, serve each other like the Golden State Warriors will. Um, or the Philadelphia Eagles did this year where everyone's serving each other. It's all for one and one for all. The team identity matters. People aren't into statistics. And what happens? The team gels and they win a championship or a Super Bowl, and then everyone gets big contracts, Super Bowl rings, their own radio show, and, um, you know, their brand grows, and then it's hard to maintain the humility that leads to championships. But in essence, I do think that humility is a key to great um, teamwork and great championships and team sports. I, excuse me. I definitely agree about that. I want to ask about your father. Uh, not only was he a quarterback before you, but he was such a phenomenal conservative leader. What sort of inspiration did you gain from him? An awful lot. Um, I feel like I was really, really blessed by a dad that loved to hug and uh, kiss his kids and compliment his kids and give them encouragement. Uh, My dad was probably one of the all-time encouragers. Um, I remember one game I didn't get to play, and Dad called me on the phone. He says, Jeff, I saw you today. You look good. I said, Dad, I didn't even get in the game, and I was all frustrated. He said, I know, but I saw you warming up. You were really throwing well. (laughs) He'd find whatever he could to encourage. And he used to say, hey, I know you're back up, but keep thinking like a starter, working like a starter. Your day's going to come. I believe in you. Everyone needs someone to believe in them. And uh, remember Ronald Reagan believed in America. Um, right. And that was a lot of what people loved about Reagan. Um, you know, Jimmy Carter was a great guy, but he kind of had a pessimistic view of America and its future and was looking at our problems and was kind of tinkering with how can we, you know, work on this little problem. And Reagan, I mean, he was up on the mountaintop. 
uh, saying, you know, we are founded as a city on a hill and we need to be one in the future and uh, we need to achieve, you know, our, our, our original intent and our, our purpose to spread freedom around the world and prosperity. We're, we're a great nation. Um, my dad was that kind of sunny disposition, optimist leader. Um, and he was always encouraging not just his kids, but he encouraged the people in his district in Buffalo. He encouraged the tenants, public housing, when he was running HUD. Um, he encouraged the administration to work on giving ownership of those low-income government project homes to the people because the people own things. They care for them. They invest in them. They add value. And he used to say, you never see people driving a rental car through a car wash, do you? <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons why this publicly owned housing project isn't managed well. So dad worked on tenant management where he put the tenants in charge of the uh, nonprofit company that managed and started mowing the lawns and uh, keeping the crime down, fixing the broken doors and windows. Um, and he also believed in home ownership. Um, and that's why he wanted low capital gains tax rates in America. He wanted low tax rates, not just a tax cut. Tax cut is just throwing a little money at people. They'll spend it that year, just like they spend their tax refund. Um, but a tax rate reduction says this year, next year, the year after, and the year after, you can count that the government will take a smaller piece of your pie so it's worth you hiring another truck driver, buying another truck, investing in 10 more computers, um, doing some more marketing, expanding your business, hiring six more people. Um, that's what entrepreneurs and businesses do when there's an incentive-based tax structure. Um, they used to call it supply side. I think incentive-oriented would be a better description of it. So dad was an encourager to his kids, an encourager to uh, other people, and I think he was an encourager to America to live up to our dream by letting every person, rich, poor, black, white, any background, um, rise as far as their uh, skills and energies would take them. And that's why he really did believe in opportunity. There's been discrimination. We've had welfare laws that trapped people rather than put them on an escalator or a trampoline. It was more like a, a safety net that became a trap. Um, Dad really believed in incentives and uh, did a great job explaining economics, explaining free enterprise, explaining America um, for all. I wish he would have at least become vice president in 96 because, you know, him and um, Dole would have been a great alternative to the two that were in office then for sure. Yeah, Bob Dole is a phenomenal American. His courage, um, his leadership in the Senate, um, a very well-respected man. The Instant Deb was humbled to be chosen by him because those two disagreed a bunch on policy. Um, Dole had a much more um, cautious, um, zero-sum approach to the economy. Dad had a, a dynamic attitude that if you cut tax rates in the long term, you'll bring in more tax revenue. Um, he wasn't afraid to run a deficit if he knew he could grow the economy um, and make the size of those deficits, uh, relatively speaking, shrink. Um, so they'd had a lot of disagreements, but then when Bill chose them, Dad was humbled and, and thankful. But interestingly, um, Dad was the visionary, and I think he could have cast a fabulous view for America had he been at the lead of a ticket. But either way, it would have been great if they had won those two. No, that would have been for sure. So uh, with our last question here, 
Uh, could you elaborate more on, I know you mentioned that you founded your organization a bit after leaving the NFL. Um, you know, what have you done throughout that period? And I know you said you have a trip coming up. Is that related to that at all? So um, I founded a group called Stronger Families and ran it for 18 years in the Northwest. And uh, we worked to help churches and businesses and nonprofits and media put more resources in the hands of people so they could prepare for marriage, strengthen their marriages, learn about fathering and parenting, and stay closer and hold families together. So the best thing you can do for kids um, is to strengthen marriage. The best thing you can do for your own kids is to love the mom or dad of your kids. Even if you're divorced um, or unmarried, respect really makes a difference. So I worked on that cause to strengthen marriage and families for 18 years there and then um, left in uh, 2010 and joined Family Life, a national organization, to do similar work at strengthening marriages and families. Um, and I was a speaker and did some broadcasting and worked a lot to help equip churches with resources that they could use to strengthen families. And I worked there from 2000. Uh, 12 until 2017, and these days I lead Jeff Kemp team. Um, I lead businesses and coach executives and speak at companies. Uh, I lead them into building excellent teamwork and a culture of teamwork that can overcome blitzes and seize them as opportunities, not just obstacles. So a lot of corporate training and speaking and some coaching um, to entrepreneurs and business leaders. And um, something that I've been doing for years that's one of my primary goals is to be active on weekends speaking to men. So I speak at a lot of church retreats, men's retreats, men's events, men's outreach events, um, and just love helping men understand their identity, their purpose, how to view relationships, uh, why friendship with other men and mentors is so important, um, and how to follow kind of Jesus's ways and the biblical pathways of, of manhood works so much better than the confusing and counterfeit uh, pictures of manhood that our society is sharing. So um, these days it's, you know, speaking on teamwork and relationships and leadership. I'm on my own serving businesses and then uh, churches and men's events on the weekends and, uh, I love teaching and leading and speaking on teamwork and overcoming blitzes. And um, so I'd love for folks they can go to my website, facingtheblitz.com, uh, um, and find uh, a weekly resource. I have a video and a short devotion that people can subscribe to for free. And uh, my book is there, Facing the Blitz, and also a couple free discussion guides for guys groups um, for six weeks or 12 weeks. And then I also have a website, Jeff Kemp Team. Dot com. So there's two, com and com. Great. Well, uh, we will definitely check it out more, and uh, thanks again for coming on. Good to be with you, AJ. You have a great day, thanks. and best to all your listeners. You too. Bye. So that's it for the show today. Uh, thanks again to Jeff Kemp. Uh, it was great to talk a bit about football and, of course, bring up politics, given his connection to that as well. So we'll be back next week uh, with a new episode. Uh, be sure to tune in for that, and that should be another good guest. And until then, I'm A.J. Bruno for The A.J. Bruno Show. So long, and goodbye.